This is the Santita Jackson Show. The Santita Jackson Show. It's a joy to be with you today. It's feeling positively almost spring-like in Chicago and Minneapolis-St. Paul. I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. We are getting ready for this Democratic convention, which will happen in August of 2024. And um, many people are expecting... different voices to come through. Indeed, as President Biden has been making public appearances, uh, he has been met with demonstrators, with protesters, particularly those who are uh, supportive of a ceasefire in Gaza. Let's talk about that. What does that mean? Many of his, uh, the people in the audience have been trained to shout back four more years, but are we allowing free speech? And is President Biden hearing what most Americans want, which is a ceasefire, and how will that impact him going forward? Let's also talk about the vote ceasefire vote in New Hampshire. John Nichols will be on talking with us about that. How did that go? Uh, what would the? How did that go with the Democrats' efforts to really tamp down the vote? The Attorney General of New Hampshire said, look, you, DNC, are guilty of voter suppression, of violating our voter suppression laws because you told people that this is a meaningless election. You need to keep your put your eyes on South Carolina. Mm. And then, of course, Dr. Maxwell's talking about the economy. Let's get to some of these headlines, Henry, so that we can get on to the rest of the show. Fighting has intensified. In southern Gaza, thousands of civilians are trapped or struggling to flee the area, according to AIDS groups. A blast killed 12 people sheltering at a U.N. facility uh, yesterday. The U.N.'s top court will deliver an initial ruling tomorrow on South Africa's request that the court order Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza. Ohio lawmakers banned gender-affirming care for trans minors. People under 18 will be stopped from accessing treatments like puberty blockers and hormone therapy. In the state, lawmakers overrode the government's veto yesterday. More than 20 states have imposed similar restrictions in recent years, and hundreds of anti-trans bills have made their way through state legislatures. Have a talk about that one day. Alabama plans to carry out an execution using nitrogen gas tonight. Kenneth Eugene Smith, convicted in a 1988 murder-for-hire scheme, is the intended target. The state tried to execute him by lethal injection in 2022, but officials couldn't find the vein. He would be the first person to be executed in this way. It's supposed to be a particularly cruel form of execution, and human rights experts say that the untested method could cause pain and amount to torture. But the Supreme Court cleared the way for the execution yesterday. Uh, The Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, enrollment hit a record level. More than 21 million people have signed up for health plans through the Affordable Care Act. Health insurance marketplaces, it was announced yesterday. Former President Trump says he wants to try again to repeal the program if reelected. He has not put forth a viable replacement. And grounded Boeing 737 MAX jets could fly again in the next few days, although it has been found that in many jets, the bolts were never put in. Wow. The FAA has cleared the airlines to begin formal inspections of the planes containing these bolts. Alaska and United Airlines both aim to resume services within a week, they announced yesterday. So 
So will it be safe? Well, we'll have to see. And many people are heralding the return of John Stewart to the Daily Show for the 2024 election year every Monday starting February 12th. Today, we're going to have a high of 37 degrees in Minneapolis and in Chicago. And, of course, we've got the division championship weekend in football. We cannot wait to see what's going to happen in the NFL. Who will be going to the Super Bowl? The Bulls will be playing the Lakers tonight. And the Timberwolves are triumphant over the Wizards, 118 to 107. And Chicago fell to the Kraken yesterday, 6-2. And the Wild will be facing the Predators tonight. And those are the headlines. In the meantime, we've got with the good news today. Pastor Darius Brooks, the Grammy Award-winning producer and iconic songwriter of modern gospel music, he's a pastor of his church now, Grace Central Church in Westchester, Illinois, and they, as he goes into the good news, I want him to tell us about the food that he is able to give away by the hundreds of bags, by the hundreds of bags, although you should be grateful for anything any amount of generosity that people show show you. Uh, they're able to give people uh, proteins, meats, fish, and all kinds of things that, that will help you to have a well-rounded diet. Pastor Darius, books, before you get into the good news, how can we be a part of this should we need it? I mean, does one need to register or can you just get in the line? Uh, good morning, Cynthia. Actually, uh, we, we register everyone. We serve eight different townships, but we turn no one away. Uh, not only do we serve eight different townships, and in those townships are the people that we come, but there's not one person that will come to our food pantry that needs food that we turn away. Grace Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois, every Tuesday from 5 to 7, and Wednesday we do seniors so they're, they're not out uh, in the evening at noon till 2, from noon till 2. Again, that's Grace Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois. And Santita, we do this every week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays for the seniors. Uh, every Tuesday, Grace Central Church. GraceCentral.net if you need to get any more, in, any more information on us. And of course, DariusBooks.com. You can get all that information uh, for what you need for food. Santita, I'm excited about the Word today, and I share with Grace Central often that the Word is a lamp into our feet. It's a light into our pathway, even if we don't want it, even if we don't use it, even if we chase the things we think we want more than this. So ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And the reason why this God thing and this Bible thing is so real and true, it only benefits the one who really gets in it and believe it, and believe that God really is a rewarder to them that diligently seek him, especially if everything in our lives are not adding up, that things are not just adding up. It's a place in God, through his word, that there's a place of peace that gives us direction. I want to go to Hebrews 11, 5, and 6. It says, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not be deaf and was not found because God had translated him. Well, before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that, and the part right here that's important, Santita, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. Santita, I want to use that thought, if I can, just for a moment. Faith, I.G., 
shines the brightest in the dark. Faith IG shines the brightest in the dark. Things don't look good right now. Things are not making sense. When we are dealing with trouble, perplexity, opposition, and trials, this is one of the languages that's used a lot in the midst of trouble and trials. Once I had a grip on things, I felt comfortable. Trials would make you feel like things are spiraling out of control. Without being experienced spiritually in and through God's word, that is, in the natural, one can be impaired in their capacity of being clear and true. Our personal experiences, the ones we chose, as well as the experiences we experience with others, is a required test, meaning there have to be and must be, Santita, some kind of communication. This might not turn out well in the human experience, but I heard somebody say we don't communicate to listen and learn. We often communicate to get our point across. But Enoch here had a language, and his language was, I'm pleasing God. This crazy, amazing place has always given us a place as a believer to not utilize our place or words, but get into God's word to use his. And and since as I close, this is where it makes a lot of sense. It's a part of being human, trying to make sense out of all of this. We deal with human experiences with pain and pleasure, delight, disappointment, shame, and self-confidence experiences of the past, present, and future. All of these experiences reflect what we believe. And as I close, life only makes sense in retrospect. If he brought you through that, he'll bring you through this. And when you trust God with your whole heart, I mean, not to your own understanding, and when in all of your ways, you just acknowledge what his word says. It doesn't matter what's in front of you. He will direct your path. Santita, Faith IG is not Instagram. My church thought I would go on that. Faith IG is faith in God shines the brightest in the dark. Let me ask you this. What do you do? Because this is a wonderful word today. There are many people in the audience who are atheists, who are agnostic, um, for a whole set of reasons. How do you communicate to them? You know, I remember Dick Gregory saying many, all, just all of my life, because I knew him all of my life, and he would communicate that. He said, you know, I don't know anyone on death row who is religious. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know any agnostics or atheists who are on death row. And that is interesting. Uh, so I want to know, what do you, how do you communicate to people who are not in the world of faith. Is there a way to do that? Absolutely, Santita. I think the first thing we need to understand is if you think education is expensive, you should drop ignorance. That's to all of us at the end of the day. But you use three words that people need to articulate. I'm a study of words. The word you use, one, is religious. The other word you use is a person of faith. Uh, and I use the word believer. Santita, those are three separate places people have come. No wonder people are confused. A religion is religious. It's a group of people who believe what they believe. That's why we have so many of them. Religious people does not mean that's God. It's people who created the way they see things are. And if it's God in them, it's good. It's religious. God's never been a religious person. He's never been a religion. <laughs> so 
if he's right about that religious people on death row, then you got those of faith. You got people that have faith, but they don't have faith in God. It's two faiths, people. You can have faith to get a husband, a man, a car, all that stuff. But faith in God is different. Faith in God means what does that mean? What is where they separate the boys from the man and the girls from the women? Faith in God says to get into God's word and study. Here's where the believer comes in. There's a non-believer, which is an atheist. There's an unbeliever, which is a person who's in the Word of God, who don't do what the Word of God says. Did you catch what I just said? <laughs> These are people who go to church every Sunday, and they only use Scripture, but they don't use God's Word to really be in it. They just have it. You can't just have God. You have to be in them, just like people are in everything else. You got to be into this thing. Into this thing is where the believer comes in, which is why the Scripture today says, if you're going to come to God, you must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that can. It's here that he'll reward you from a divine place, not a natural place. My place in God is a divine place. I trust him. I was born in 1963. I'm going to die one day saying, Jesus, that's the dash. God is in control of natural life and, and eternal life. And anybody who don't study won't understand this. We have, we have two lives. Some of you only live life once. It's not true. There's an eternal life. This is after this life. You ain't going to find this stuff outside of reading and studying the Word of God. You want to sure. TikTok, Facebook? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can, I mean, you can find God everywhere. I guess for me is as I talk to people and I'm, you know, when people hear my voice or when they see me, they're like, ah, I, I listen to your show, watch your show. You'll be able to watch us next week, every day. And some people pulled me aside and they said, you know, I'm atheist. I'm agnostic. And what I want to do is cast the net wide enough so that people all feel Included, You know, we don't have to share the same belief system, but I do want you to walk away from these words with comfort. And that's the language he's talking about, translation. Yeah, that translation. Okay. In, in, yeah, it means language. It means communicate, which means a lot of us will not have some of our answers, but there's some of us who will. So God uses all of us with our language and our faith to let people know this is what we do, which is one of the reasons I share with Grace Central. Be careful not taking God where you go. Don't rush in and push it down people's throat, but be in such a place and in such a spirit that people are like, wow, you are amazing. And then you share with them, I believe in God. But other than that, sure. you know, you gotta, the word of God says, he that when it souls are wise, but you better not, as a believer, go no place and not represent God. Because that's the reason we're here. You can say, Pastor Darius Brooks. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm hearing you, and that's why I want, you know, want that to be communicated because also people who are of faith struggle with it, and there is all of that. But I've got Dr. Shanita Knighton with us. Very quickly, how can we worship with you at Great Central? Great Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois. Services on 1030 till noon. And we just give in. We're very informative. I like to be informative when it comes to God, not just a scripture and religious. Great Central Church, 10216 South Kitchener Street, Westchester, Illinois. Hey, Dr. Shabina. Thank you so much. Good morning. Dr. How Shanina, are you? Dr. Shanina Knight, what's on your mind today? Talk to me. We are, we're hitting record levels of, of, of what Affordable Care people are entering that marketplace and what's on your mind with respect to health this morning? Um, honestly, just a message um, to remind people to stop downplaying their illness. 
or things that may be wrong with them, meaning like understanding that, you know, prevention is better than treatment. Early detection is early is better than later detection. Making sure that something is wrong with you is better than speculating that everything is okay. A lot of times when people end up passing away or ending up severely sick, they get warning signs. They'll get indications, you know, there may have been some lingering, let's say, chest pain that maybe went ignored because they said, oh, it's just a little bit of, you know, maybe I didn't digest my food right or maybe, you know, it'll it'll go away. There may be, let's say, some tingling in the left arm and it's like, oh, I just slept wrong, right? There might be someone with a cough that's lingering and ongoing and say, oh, well, maybe it's just long COVID. The point is, is a lot of times, like, when people end up sick, when they are ill, when they end up in a bad situation, it's nine times out of ten because they have ignored their body's early warning system, letting them know that they were in imminent danger and that they needed to get checked out. When this happens, we end up in a situation of where it's almost at a point of no return. So if someone is going in with symptoms and they're saying, oh, it's gotten this bad, at that point, it could have already led to, let's say, some kidney failure. It could have led to some sort of other organ failure, meaning, oh, like you're in this bad of shape. So I want people to stop downplaying their illness for the sake of work, for the sake of caring for others, for the sake of thinking that something takes higher priority over their bodies. Remember, you only get one time in this show with this identity, so you have to take care of your body. If you do not, and you do not make time for your wellness, you will be forced to make time for your illness. And at that point, you can't care for anyone if you don't best care for yourself. So it is important to be the CEO of your own health. It is important to stop ignoring the signs and symptoms. And there's a thing that you should stay ready instead of trying to get ready. And then there's the thing that is best that you know and you're best prepared to take care of things instead of not. And with that being said... That is my message for today. That's a big deal because, you know, we took this much more seriously. Any ache or pain when we were locked down, you took that seriously. And the people in your life, your boss, all of these people, they were like, if you don't feel well, stay home. Now we've returned back to the same old, same old. Look, you just got to continue to slug it out. And people, and also there's fear, Dr. Knighton, when you feel the lump. You have the chest pain. Um, people really, really fearful. I've got less than a minute. What would you, what would you say to folks who are scared when they come across that lump, or when their partner comes across the lump, or, or just when you feel that little chest pain? What would you? How can you tell people just to go forward and get it taken care of? Because if you do not take care of it and it does end up being something major, it's the unexpected 
tragedies, it's the unexpected losses, it's the unexpected illnesses, the unexpected consequences that end up doing more damage instead of getting it taken care of. Oftentimes when people tend to do something about something, it's because they've had to have an emergent situation. So somebody blacking out, somebody in a near in a car accident or in a situation where they nearly do something detrimental because they didn't get something checked out. So I remind people, please take care of your bodies. And if someone is telling you to go and take care of your body, listen to them. At least you can come back with a clear report. Dr. Shanina Knighton, everybody. Dr. Shanina Knighton. Hey, Dr. Nina, H-E-Y-D-R-N-I-N-A, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Please take care of yourselves, everybody. Let's talk about some of the protests that President Biden is facing while he's on the road. At first, he was kind of, you know, like, cool with it, but the last, uh, yesterday, when he was getting the endorsement from the UAW, they said there were signs of zero, what, visible irritation. But, you know, this is kind of where we are in 2024. So call me at 773-763-9278. Let's talk about protest, the protest that President Biden is having to deal with while he's on the road. Back with more of the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. In the next hour, we will be talking with John Nichols from The Nation magazine about uh, the vote ceasefire resolution. Uh, not even resolution. Uh, Democrats were, were asked to write in ceasefire because President Biden's name did not appear on the ballot in New Hampshire. How did that go? Particularly given the mixed messages that Democratic voters received from the party. They were told that this was a meaningless primary, and the attorney general of the state said, hey, you're violating our voter suppression laws. You're supposed to be encouraging people, educating people to vote. You're you're dismissing them. You're telling them not to vote. Whoa. So what happened with that vote ceasefire resolution? And, of course, we'll be talking with Dr. Maxwell about the economy. So much of the economy is driving the unease and the unrest in the electorate. When the money's running, everything is off, everybody. But this is the headline from NBC News. Biden team ramps up strategy for dealing with more protests. Get this from the left and the right. Uh, They have been preparing for the usual political protests, but they know that they're coming, these protests are coming from the left and the right. And so they're seeking to confront these dynamics that only recently emerged, particularly with respect to Israel and Hamas and Gaza and the Palestinians. This is something that... Quite frankly, Democrats and Republicans have, had, have not had to deal with. And so as, these, as the deaths climb, as the genocide becomes clearer, uh, pro-Palestinian or pro-ceasefire protesters, demonstrators are showing up. And they're showing out. And so at a UAW event in the middle of the president's speech, they were dragged out and they were carried out. 
And then, of course, at the church in Atlanta, same thing happened. And so Biden's supporters have been trained to say four more years, four more years. But other people are chanting Genocide Joe, Genocide Joe. So what do you think about this? Um, and the president, for his portion, appeared to be, you know, just take it with some equanimity initially. But now you're seeing visible signs of irritation. And the staff, his staff, are trying to figure out what do we do about this, particularly with these people who are calling for the ceasefire. Not the restoration of Roe v. Wade, but ceasefire. And how will this all play out in Chicago in August and throughout the rest of the campaign? Remember, this is not 2020 where you could campaign in absentia. You now must be physically present. That's just the reality. We are not in pandemic mode, although COVID is still here. So we're talking with Dr. David Gibbs, uh, historian from the University of Arizona, and of course, Dwight McKee, social scientist. Let me start with you, Dwight, because you lived through the 68 uh, convention here in Chicago and the tumult of those times. Um, One can only imagine how you all must have felt between the last day of March in 1968 and June 5th, June 6th, 1968. In the span of really two months, the president said, I will not accept and I will not seek the nomination. Four days later, Dr. King is murdered in in Atlanta. I mean, excuse me, in in Memphis. Two months after that, while at, just after uh, Robert Kennedy attends his funeral, he gets killed. And many people felt that he was a presumptive nominee. He had all of the momentum. What do you think about how the president's handling this now? Should he expect this kind of pushback on ceasefire on Gaza? What do you think? And is he handling well, it well? Well, I think it's very difficult for him because he has created this persona of empathetic Joe because he lost his wife and lost his child, you know, lost two mm-hmm. two, two children, as a matter of fact, yeah. uh, in his life. One of the things that has been a great strength of his is that when he meets tragedy, it is for him to put his arms around the victim. Uh, to create, you know, some real tears in some cases and to empathize with them and say, I know how you feel, I know what you're going through. And it's been one of the things that has separated him from Donald Trump is Donald Trump has this mystique of being, you know, the Iron Man. And, and Joe has this image of being Uncle Joe. Well, what this does is this crashed that 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 mythology uh, head on. It says to people that this whole mystique of empathy does not apply to a whole country of young women and children who are getting bombed and maimed and killed by the hour. And where is that sympathetic Joe? Where is that image? Where is that empathy? Uh, when these people need that from you, you can uh, can safely and cavalry with great cavalier take the position that you know they deal with it when they deal with it. And so now he's being met with people who've called him a genocidist, 
And I don't think he's ever prepared to have to deal with that. Both he and Netanyahu are dealing with that. Netanyahu, everywhere he goes, he's confronted with people say, you need to quit. You should quit. You should quit. Biden is now, you know, with the same uh, the same regularity. Everywhere he goes now, he's meeting with people who says to him, you know, you are a killer. You are a murderer. You must go. You must go. And so he can does not know how to respond himself. So what they've done is they've then uh, proselytized his crowd to say four more years, four more years, four more years. But it's an undefined four more years because the four more years does not address the issue. Is this four more years of genocide? If this four more years of ceasefire? This is four more years of what? And that's not being addressed. And so I think personally, and I've said this, you know, over and over again, it's going to cost him the election because those young people uh, and those other people who are empathetic to this issue, uh, who used to have, you know, came out of the, the hope and change generation, that he was able to attach himself with via the uh, Obama, they are now becoming disillusioned. And they don't see or can appreciate the Joe Biden that they believe was going to be an extension of the positivity that they saw in Michelle and, and Barack of real hope and change and, and, and real generation of that would do good and show mercy and and, and uh, they just they don't they don't they don't understand this Joe Biden and they don't understand this Democratic Party. So um I, Well let me ask you I, this I really let me ask you this will they by putting the Michelles and the Barack Obamas and uh, the the vice president by putting them on the road Will that mitigate some of this? Well, I'm not sure they're going more sympathetic figures. I'm not sure that they can get on the road because they have their own images to protect. And they don't want to become, he does not want to become genocide Barat. And she does not want to become genocide Michelle. And so it's high risk for them to get out there and have to justify this situation when they're still trying to ride. The, uh, um, the prerogatives of being, you know, Nobel Prize peace winners and and hope and change, and you know that's that's their brand now. That's what they take to the bank. And so I'm not sure how far they can get out there. But and if they do get out there, I'm not sure it's going to make any difference. In fact, I'm positive it's not going to make any difference at all. One who haven't lived through the '60s. And having been in Chicago during the Democratic Convention and been in the movement when Dr. King got killed, uh, and being one of the people who, you know, expected uh, Kennedy to come out of Chicago as a nominee, and having seen uh, what happened with Johnson and this and the Democrats in that, I mean, I don't I don't see any uh, positivity coming out. 
And I know that it decimated the Democrats. That convention decimated the Democrats and set the tone for Nixon them a couple of years later to you really to take over the political process. Because all of the equity of the Democratic Party was lost during that war and watching what had happened with Johnson and him having to literally, the most powerful man in the country, walk away with his head between his legs, saying, you know, uh, I will not run. You can't make me run. Don't try to make me run. And he was a guy who wanted to be president all of his life. So much so to say, some people say he helped manipulate the process to become the president. But that's another discussion. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Gibbs, your thoughts? I mean, now the campaign has hired a veteran to deal with this. And so they're training uh, the the supporters of President Biden. And I'm not saying that these that the demonstrators aren't supporters either. You know, they but they're they're expressing an opinion. Uh, they're being immediately they chant four more years, four more years, four more years. And yet most Americans by an overwhelming margin want a ceasefire. No one's hearing that. I mean, how's this all going to work? I mean, because at first the president was like, you know, I appreciate your passion. You know, you should feel free to express yourself. Now you see signs, visible signs of irritation. You're like, really? Do I have to deal with this? Yeah, you kind of have to. Your thoughts? Well, it reminds me again, yes, of 1968, in particular, you know, adding to what Dwight said, uh, that, um, you know, you had a president, um, Johnson, uh, really did, um, at the domestic level, in my view, at least, have a real record of accomplishment far more than anything Biden can talk about. Um, and um, to his astonishment, he very suddenly became a deeply unpopular president or in the Vietnam War when he went out on the campaign trail. He was greeted by young people chanting, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Mm-hmm. And often more more obscene slogans of a sort I can't repeat here. But, um, you know, the fact of the matter is it was deeply shocking to Johnson. And, of course, it drove him out of the race. It um, really shattered his spirit. And um, I, I think you're going to see something like whether I'm not going to speculate on Biden leaving the race, I think that's unlikely, but I think it psychologically is having a very similar impact on him and that he sees himself, I think wrongly, as having a major record of domestic accomplishment. Um, And um, until now, he was facing a party that had been remarkably united. The activist left people like AOC, the squad, Bernie Sanders were um, solidly behind him. There was... it was almost disturbing the extent to which the Democrats were um, um, united. And there was no discussion, no debate. It, it, it seemed like any debate was actually on the Republican side. And, um, you know, uh, and they were united against this, um, you, know, m- you know, massive threat of Donald Trump. Now that seems to be breaking down very fast. And not so much from members of Congress like AOC, who I think are still... Um, don't really know how to deal with this issue, but uh, much more just sort of activists in the street, and we're seeing it again and again and again. And there's nothing to suggest this is going to damp down or go away. And I don't really think the Democrats have a clue as to how they're going to deal with it. Hiring consultants and so on, I, I just don't think that's going to be the answer. Um, they're, they, 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 they basically 
created this enormous dilemma for themselves. Basically, Joseph Biden has gone around the world starting one war after another, or at least intensifying one war after another, enabling wars, massively destabilizing the world. And now it's also destabilizing American politics as well. It's destabilizing his campaign. And he has nobody to blame for it but himself, in my view. Is there any way, do you see any room historically? I mean, do you see him on the same path, the same trajectory, Dr. Gibbs, that that LBJ was on? I mean, sans or without a resignation. I mean, do you see that same kind of trajectory? I mean, I do. I think that um, this isn't the only thing that's going to sink his campaign, but I think that will contribute to the sinking of his campaign and the likely election of Donald Trump. I think that's a increasing probability now. I don't want to say it's a certainty because nothing's certain in politics. Things can change. Who knows? But I think it's a probability at this point that Biden will not be reelected. And I personally, I don't think he should be reelected. He has not earned reelection by any standard. Um, and um, so what you're going to see, I think, is that this will have multiple effects. First of all, it undercuts any kind of moral authority or credibility he or his party could claim. Um, it is the, um, you know, all the pictures, the videos for all to see of the uh, dead children, uh, the children with their limbs blown off and so on. Uh, and it's just continuing. And the Israeli officials are talking brazenly about how they don't care. Uh, how they want to drive the Palestinians out of Gaza, possibly drive them out of the West Bank. And we're financing all of this to the hilt without any real effort at restraint. Uh, all of this is undermining the moral authority of Biden. Furthermore, it's having economic implications, it's having economic repercussions. It's spreading the war to Yemen, to Iraq. It's spreading the war all over the region. Um, it's reducing uh, shipping traffic in the Red Sea. Um, all of this will have economic implications. It'll make it much more difficult uh, for you know Biden to grow the economy, to reduce inflation, to raise wages. All of this will uh, create multiple problems for him. And we should not forget, this is in addition to a major war in Ukraine that's going very badly indeed, that our side is losing the war. That's quite clear if you look carefully. And I suspect that's going to come much more into public view in coming months. People have forgotten about it, but I, you can't forget about a war as important as what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, and so you have, you know, multiple wars that Biden, in my view, either started or greatly contributed to. And these are now coming back to haunt him. And I think he's dug himself into such a deep hole. I don't think he can dig himself out of that hole. And so, yes, I think this will sink his campaign. Is this a hole that's so deep that he cannot get out of it? That's my view, yes. Um, I mean, he could, I I suppose, hypothetically, um, you know, he could finally do what he's refused to do so far, which is either cut off aid to Israel, which would force them to change their policy, or make credible threats that Israel better, better, begin a ceasefire and proceed to a two-state solution in a serious way they haven't done before, or the U.S. will cut off their aid. I just don't see Biden doing that. There's nothing in his record over his entire political lifetime, which is long, that he has any capacity to think in those terms. All his aides seem completely committed to this idea of supporting Israel no matter what. Previous presidents didn't do that, by the way. Even Ronald Reagan put pressure on Israel to withdraw from Lebanon. 
um, Al Eisenhower demanded Israel, France, and Britain withdraw from Egypt. Um, but Biden just seems to be have this sort of lockstep commitment to Israel and some very mild verbal criticisms is all he's willing to do. So I just don't see him reversing course at this point. Hmm. Dwight McKee? I think it's too late, though. Yeah, I think it's too late, though. It's uh, because Israel now has enough arms that they can probably mm-hmm. go on another year without any reinvestment from America because, you know, they got to stop piling yeah. arms now. And then Yahoo is determined that he's going to make this a long-range war. It does not matter what uh, Biden says. So I think it's too late to stop that, that bleeding. And what you hit on that is not being talked about that's going to come up again is uh, what's happening with Russia and uh, the Ukraine. They have effectively lost that war, and it was a a wasteful war because all they did basically was lose their cities and lose their people with no return on that investment. I said from day one that they should really have discussed a uh, negotiation for that war because there was no way they could win and that America would give them just enough ammunition to lose and to lose all of their people. And they've lost, you know, the whole population and whole cities. So I think it's too late. And we haven't even talked about the other basic stuff like the, the, uh, the border issue that he has no, he has no idea how to address. And the economy, which people see, is being in a decline. Well, very and quickly, what about more. the border? Very quickly, what about the border? Because he gave the response to, I don't know how he gave it to uh, Vice President Harris, but he did. Um, what do you think? And all they did was, erode, all they did was erode her legitimacy and her credibility. I mean, they had a net impact on. So now what, what the Republicans argue is that why would you put him in office and run the risk of him dying in office and her being the president? See what she's in with the border. She has no clue. It's their argument in terms of how to, you know, solve an issue. So, yeah, they've dug themselves in a hole that I don't think they could ever get out of. Hmm. Uh, where do you see this all going this summer, Dr. Gibbs? About a minute for you. Um, well, you know, it's obviously going to get worse. Biden, I think, is going to become more and more irritated and irritable on the stump. Um, One of the problems you're going to see is this is a very old man, 81 years old, who has obvious frailties, physical and mental. And um, he was able to avoid a full-scale campaign in 2020 due to uh, the pandemic. He uh, famously campaigned from his basement in Delaware. He can't do that this time. He's going to have to go around the country vigorously campaigning. I suspect he's not physically up to it. Um, this is already going to be enormously stressful for this this elderly man. And again, I, I, I'm sympathetic because, you know, um, I'm 65 and, uh, you know, I, I can see that I don't have the energy I did when I'm 20. So I understand how he feels. But this is going to be an additional stress for him. And I suspect you're going to see him losing his temper. You're going to see him expressing exasperation. And all of this is going to undercut his any ability he has uh, to effectively run for office. It's going to undermine his campaign in a very personalized way. Um, and so, um, and you know, the, the situation on the ground in both the Middle East and in Russia will continue to get worse. 
I will continue to deteriorate. And public support for all these policies, which is already tanking, will continue to tank. And um, again, this is something which I think was avoidable months ago, or in the case of Ukraine, two years ago. But I think basically he's gone too far to back out of these policies. And so um, he's pretty much stuck with the policies and he's stuck with the consequences. And the ultimate consequence very likely will be um, an increasingly bitter and ineffectual campaign on his part. Dwight, project into uh, this coming campaign. What do you see? I've got a minute. I'm not sure he's going to make the cut. I'm not sure he's going to survive all of this, to be honest with you. He may not even be the candidate. He may end up doing what Johnson did. It's just kind of put off, particularly when he's hearing start on his impeachment and they start going after his family. I don't think he has the fortitude to be able to withstand the assault at every level. And so I think he may end up bowing out gracefully. I think even now he's only running out of desperation because they only have another candidate they think can beat can be the uh, Trump and they're afraid of Trump becoming president. He's going after all of them and he is and he's told them that he is. And so uh I, I'm just I think that that uh it's going to be such a devastating uh, preponderance of issues that he may not even end up a candidate. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a possibility? 30 seconds, Dr. Gibbs, just given your understanding of history. Uh, it, it's sure it's, it's definitely a possibility. Um, you know, I was wondering if um, myself, if you might see a scenario where Biden simply collapses physically and mentally while he's campaigning. Uh, that can't be ruled out. Again, I, I, I don't wish that on him. I don't wish that on anybody. But uh, given the circumstances, I think that's a real possibility. When that happens, yes, he may have no choice uh, but to step down and let somebody else run instead of him. Um, and it would happen from the standpoint of the Democrats under the very worst circumstances. But that may very well be what will happen here. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, going past Kamala Harris won't work for them either. I mean, you'd have a lot of people who would be quite sure about that. It's just, we'll have to see. But in the meantime, people need to get registered to vote, get involved. Mm. You know what? You all should hang out. we got John Nichols coming up to talk to us about what happened in New Hampshire with vote ceasefire. Many Democrats did not even know those who knew that Biden, you could write his name in, many of them did not know about the ceasefire push. That right in. Mm, that's a more. Uh, the Santita Jackson Show in just a minute. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. Oh, yes, we can. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio. The voice of progressive Minnesota. Keep it locked right here if you want to hear the latest and the greatest when the Democrats come to town. This is the place. But you know what? We are open to everybody. We want you to get your political 
political education right here, the political information. Call us at 773-763-9278. Let's talk about this vote ceasefire resolution that um and how did it go in uh in new hampshire um even as democrats pushed back against the dnc pushed back against uh democrats from new hampshire participating in the process they said look we've already decided the first primaries in south carolina new hampshire said no it's here and you can't just call our votes meaningless. You can't decide that you're not going to seat our delegates. You can't, you can't, you can't. We've got a lot to talk about today on the Santita Jackson show with John Nichols. What happened in New Hampshire? And of course the economy with Dr. Max Wolf. So Henry, let's get to some of these headlines so we can get to the rest of the show. We are looking at a fighting in Southern Gaza, thousands of civilians uh, are trapped or struggling to flee the area after they've been told to go there, and a blast killed 12 people sheltering at a U.N. training center yesterday. The U.N.'s top court will deliver an initial ruling on South Africa's request that the court order Israel to stop its military campaign in Gaza. Ohio, Ohio lawmakers banned gender-affirming care for trans minors. People under 18 will be stopped from accessing treatments like puberty blockers and hormone therapy in the state. Lawmakers overrode the governor's veto. Yesterday, more than 20 states have imposed similar restrictions in recent years. Alabama plans to carry out an execution using nitrogen gas tonight. Particularly, it's untested, but it's supposed to be a violent form of execution. Uh, Kenneth Eugene Smith, convicted in a 1988 murder-for-hire scheme. He is the intended target. The state tried to execute him by lethal injection in 2022, but police, but excuse me, but officials could not find a vein. Obamacare, also known as the Affordable Care Act, hit a wreck. Their enrollment hit a record level. More than 21 million people have been signed up for health plans through the Affordable Care Act health insurance marketplace. And grounded Boeing 737 MAX jets could fly again in the next few days, although many jets have been found not to have even had the boats put in. John Nichols, this is unbelievable. John Stewart is returning to The Daily Show for the 2024 election year. We will see how all of that goes in Chicago and in Minneapolis at 37 degrees and cloudy today. And in sports, of course, we're waiting to see who's going to secure the AFC and NFC championships that's this weekend. But in the NBA, the Timberwolves 118, the Wizards 107. The Bulls will be facing off against the Lakers tonight in the NHL. Chicago, well, they fell to the Kraken yesterday, 6-2. And the Wild will be facing off against the Predators. These are the headlines. Let's get to you, John Nichols. John Nichols, what happened in New Hampshire. I mean, you have the Attorney General of New Hampshire who said, look, send a cease and desist letter to the DNC. You are violating our voter suppression laws. You're telling your people that this is a meaningless election. And um, so many people didn't even know, for example, even though President Biden got 67% of the vote, many people didn't even know about the ceasefire. Uh, about the opportunity to write ceasefire in as you had to write in President Biden's name. Talk to me. What happened mm-hmm. up there? 
a lot happened. New Hampshire is a really significant primary this time, and despite the efforts of the DNC to make it something less than that. Um, and so let's let's step back for a second and understand what was going on here. Um, New Hampshire always has had the first primary. Um, it's very strict about that. They're determined to have it. It's it's in their state law. And so the Democratic National Committee tried to uh, restructure the calendar for primaries. They wanted to move the first primary to South Carolina. Um, what they said, and there's truth in this, is that they wanted it to be in a state that was more diverse, that had a larger black population, that had, um, you know, just something that wasn't so lily white, frankly, as New Hampshire. And that was a good instinct. That was a good motivation. But parallel to that was a desire to go to a state where they knew that Joe Biden would start very, very strong. Biden's always been uh, a strong finisher in South Carolina. It was South Carolina that that uh, saved his candidacy in 2020 after he had lost in Iowa and New Hampshire uh, very seriously, and so that was that's the motivation there. New Hampshire said no. You know we're not going to we're not going to go along with this. We're still going to have our primary. Biden then announced that he wouldn't file for the primary. He would not run in New Hampshire. He wouldn't campaign there. Um, and so the only way he could win the primary up there was as a write-in candidate. So now you've got all that scenario laid down. Um, the Republicans are having their primary. The Democrats are having a primary, but Biden's not on the ballot. Um, first and foremost, on the Republican side, because we should be clear on that. Donald Trump had a big victory. Um, he won by an even bigger margin or with an even bigger percentage than he got in uh, Iowa a week ago. And so his chances of becoming the Republican nominee are dramatically increased. Nikki Haley's still in the race. Frankly, her finish wasn't as strong as what she needed, and her future uh, prospects don't look all that great. So increasingly, it looks like Trump is, is going to be the nominee. Interestingly, over on the Democratic side, um, a lot of grassroots folks organized a writing campaign for Biden, and uh, he won big. Uh, he got someplace in the range. There's still there's still a little bit of uh, tabulation and and you know sorting through with some some of the writing votes and that, but it looks like he got about two thirds of the vote on the Democratic side, which is an incredibly strong finish. And um, you you can't spin it one way or the other. He just he did very very well. What it means is that the people who voted in that primary um, were motivated, and that's good for him. Um, it was also good that a lot of the people who voted for Nikki Haley on the Republican side uh, indicated that they were voting for Haley because they wanted to stop Trump. And so there's a very good chance that those folks move back over to the Democratic side in November. Um, now, one of the things you're ta- you've been talking about here that's important is that there were efforts to put the issue of Gaza into the mix in New Hampshire. And I don't think they, they succeeded very well, um, in part because there wasn't a prominent candidate who was running an anti-war or uh, a foreign policy-focused campaign. And uh, like you had in 1968 with Eugene McCarthy, who came in as an anti-Vietnam War candidate against Lyndon Johnson, and did very, very well in that, that you know, set off a series of events that ultimately led to Johnson deciding not to run for re-election. Um, and you just didn't have that sort of phenomenon in New Hampshire. What you had was um, Marion Williamson, uh, the author and, and 2020 presidential candidate, who was in favor of a ceasefire, but didn't make it the central focus of her campaign, at least not until quite late the campaign. 
and didn't have the resources or the prominence. She got about 5% of the vote. Um, not, not a big amount, but, you know, a credible uh, finish. Um, Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota who's running, who's very wealthy and did put quite a bit of money in, he got about 20% of the vote. So between them, they got about 25%. Um, and then there was votes for other candidates. A bunch of people wrote in Bernie Sanders. A surprising number of people wrote in Nikki Haley um, on the Democratic side. And then you did have a writing for ceasefire. And there was a, a campaign that started to get people to write in the word ceasefire, frankly, as a protest, as a way to send a message to Biden. And it looks like that's going to end up with a couple thousand votes, not a particularly strong finish. And as you've indicated, Santita, one of the realities there is that the ceasefire campaign, which I wrote about, um, only started in uh, about a week ago, and they didn't have resources. They just they, it was a it was a, a an idea, a prospect, a, a, an attempt to send a message. They put up some signs and they made an effort, um, but didn't really have a particular impact. Um, and now, what I would say to you is this: two things that are important here. Number one. Biden had a very good night in New Hampshire. There's no doubt of it. His finish was strong. Um, and frankly, there were vulnerabilities on the other side that frankly looked good for him. Um, and you can take that away. Uh, but I don't think that one should imagine that the, the effort to put ceasefire and to put Gaza into the mix of this election uh, is necessarily as weak as some people might think looking at the um, New Hampshire results. I still think that, that this is a huge issue for Joe Biden and one that he's got to deal with. And frankly, if Biden faced a, you know, a candidate who had resources and frankly, uh, name, high name recognition, who was talking about ceasefire, I think there'd be a very, very high vote for it. You don't have that circumstance at this point. Um, although I give credit to Marianne Williamson for raising the issue and making the effort. Um, but I think the Biden people should be very careful uh, not to assume that simply because they did very well in New Hampshire, that that means that this issue isn't going to be a reality for them. Uh, in fact, I think, I think they saw it at the uh, UAW conference on Wednesday where Biden was endorsed by the UAW, uh, but faced a protest. Uh, and a protest, which I would point out, was you know, those were, I believe, members of UAW who were actually, mm-hmm. you know, shouting ceasefire. So um, he's got ongoing challenges here that I, I think I, I continue to believe many people in the administration don't fully understand or fully recognize. Now, how can they not recognize that? Um, Because these protests, they're growing. And every time he makes a public appearance, you're seeing it. And they are undaunted, even as the audience have been trained to say four more years, they have their own response. What what are they... you can't have a tin ear when you're campaigning, right? You need to pay attention to everything. That's right. And and I look, I think what's a couple things to put in the mix here to understand politically. First and foremost, um, protests at uh, political events are not uncommon. They happen a lot. Um, there are people who protest at Trump events, um, and and there are people who protest at, at events for lots of other candidates. Um, what is significant about a protest is if it becomes consistent, if it's always there. Um, and I think that that's a likelihood as regards Gaza, that um, a, a very committed uh, 
significant group, especially younger folks, are, are going to show up. They're going to find a way to be present, and they're going to find a way to signal their opposition to this administration's policies as regards Israel-Palestine and to push for the concept, uh, the very valid concept of a ceasefire. And so that's something that's going to be a reality. Now, the Biden folks can try and, you know, come up with strategies to diminish it or to, to make it go away, but nobody's going to go to these events and not notice that reality. And, and so that's the first thing to have in your mix, right, to understand that, that this is a, going to be a permanent part of this campaign going forward, no matter, you know, how well Biden does, particularly in a primary. And again, he did well in New Hampshire yesterday. Um, it's going to be there. And that, then you get to the second part of it. Does that represent something deeper? Does it represent a portion of the electorate that may not be able to bring itself to vote for Joe Biden in this case because of this issue? They might otherwise vote for him, but they might stand down on this issue. If they do, that's a very serious issue for Biden because the fact of the matter is that at this point, the trajectory tells us that the 2024 campaign is going to be a close one. Um, Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee. I, I've heard the earlier conversation. I understand, um, you know, this, this speculation that, that somebody else might stamp up. And that's true. It's true on both sides, the Republican and the Democratic side. You have you're running older candidates who have shown, you know, uh, some of their age along the way. And, and, you know, you could have the unique circumstance that caused uh, either Trump or Biden to stand down and somebody else to step in. Um, but that's very unlikely. And you don't plan for that scenario. You, the scenario you plan for is the likely one, which is a Biden-Trump race. And that becomes a mobilization race. And for the Democrats, a lot of the base that they have to mobilize to win uh, includes young people who are very, very concerned about Gaza, people of color, uh, Native Native peoples, uh, black folks and others who in polling we, are, we see have a, a deep concern about Gaza. Um, if there's a underperformance among those groups, if those, if some folks just they don't vote for Trump, but they just don't show up, that's a huge problem for Biden. And so then you get to the final part of this scenario, and that is that, that Joe Biden has demands on him which are both international and domestic. On the international level, um, he is very locked into a lot of thinking about Israel-Palestine that's rooted, I think, in decades ago, that's rooted in the past. And I think his, his interpretation of the situation and how the U.S. should play at this point is um, off the mark. It's wrong. However, um, that's where he's at. Uh, and that's as regards to foreign policy. But as regards to domestic policy, one of the things that he and his people have to recognize is they're running in a race against Donald Trump. If they want to maintain the presidency and be able to advance a domestic agenda that is, you know, more progressive than that of Trump, but more importantly, is more defending of democracy. Um, if they want to do that, they've got to win. And so you get into this complex place politically where um, you have to assess your policies. Are your policies out of sync with your base? If they are, is that going to cause you to lose? And that, I'll conclude, you know, is simply this place where we find ourselves now. And Joe Biden has a stance on the Middle East that is unpopular with a lot of Democrats. Polling tells us that. That stance could cause him political trouble going forward. Um, it is entirely appropriate 
for people to say to him, you need to reassess your stand. You need to think about whether it is in tune with where we are at today, morally, practically, and politically. And you also need to assess whether it is damaging you in a way that might actually prevent you from winning an election that's very, very important. And I think that's going to be an ongoing pressure on the president. He never expected to be here. That is clear. And we are looking at, um, really, Chicago will be quite active. And Dwight lived through, was living here, and was active in the movement, was working with Operation Breadbasket then. Dwight, very quickly, why don't you respond to what you've heard from uh, in one minute from, and then you, uh, Dr. Gibbs, from from John uh, Nichols. Dwight McKean? Well, I think that John and, and Brother uh, uh, Professor covered all of the bases, and the analysis is correct. The analysis, like I say, the, the uh, addendum to that is that because Joe has this image of sympathy and empathy, uh, that he rockets, that he feels your pain. And it's been very effective for him. It has been what has separated him from Trump in many ways in people's minds, that he loses that credibility, that legitimacy over Gaza because the egos from, you know, Uncle Joe, who loves, you know, Jesus and he loves the little children, to uh, this cavalier guy who's written his, his uh, morality off He's bequeathed his morality to Netanyahu. And so these innocent kids are now getting killed, and now they're calling him Genocide Joe. And I'm not sure his image can survive that. Because Uh much of his, he was the benefactor, the beneficiary, I'm sorry, of much of that image that Michelle and Obama created of this being a new generation, you know, a new age of of empathy and caring of hope and change. And so he's really forfeited a lot of that. He rewrote that to the White House. He's not forfeited a lot of that and does not have the prerogatives of being able to negotiate that from this point. Now he's, you know, the father of all wars. He's in you know, four or five major wars around the world, it is very hard to justify. So uh, that and the border issue and and impeachment issues, and I'm not sure he can he'll be able to survive all of that, uh, literally and figuratively. Politically, I'm not sure he'll be able to survive, uh, survive it. And God forbid it, he may not be able to survive it physically. He may check on out of here. I have a stroke trying to negotiate all of this. If it's, it's, That's it's my reason. Sure, it's just he, he's under a tremendous amount of pressure, and that, that concerns me for him, certainly. We wish him Godspeed and want him to be well. But, John, I think he's he's not understanding the political moment. You know, you can be in the game so long, and the fans, particularly with respect to the Palestinians, have shifted so dramatically in such uh, in such short, even though it's been building. Uh-huh. But now, everything is just a completely different day. The last 90 seconds belong to you, John. 
Sure. I mean, look, we are in a, a dynamic political moment, and uh, and this is a election campaign that, where we can find references to the past. We can look to 1968, even to 1952 with Korea and Truman, um, but you don't know how it plays out because of the dramatic changes in the Republican Party. Um, it is a very different Republican Party, uh, somewhat less likely to attract the, the broad level of support that the traditional Republican Party might in a situation like this. So Biden's not out of the running. He's very much in the running. However, when you're looking at mobilization elections where you've got to get your whole base out and excited, um, I think the issue of Gaza is a real issue and one that people in the White House, and I know you asked Santita correctly, how could they not know? How could they not recognize this? But the fact of the matter is, uh, to this point, they have shown a tenure on this issue, and I think it has been harmful. And I think it will be continually harmful in places like Michigan, especially. And so the people who are protesting um, are doing something that's important in our politics. It is a way that you get through to politicians, that you get a message to them. Uh, it is wonderfully a part of our small-D democratic process, and hopefully... Um, both people on the street who are raising their voices and also people in Congress who are increasingly supporting a ceasefire um, will be heard by the White House because it is, first and foremost, a moral necessity, but it is also a practical and political necessity as we go forward in 2024. Follow him at the nation. Clearer political analysis does not exist. We've got a lot to got a lot to talk about, and this economy. Oh wow, that's driving people crazy. Doctor <laughs> Doctor Max Wolf will talk with us about it because you know when the money's funny, the honey dries up. John Nichols, <laughs> people are very upset because it you no know, money because you can't afford eggs, you can't afford rent, you can't afford your car note, you can't afford you can't afford. It's a lot going on. Back with more on the Sam Peter Jackson show in just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show. It is Thursday, January 25th, 2024. On WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. Let's talk about the economy as it relates to election 2024, and we are now seeing uh, how some voters feel, you know, and certainly with the results from New Hampshire and the results from the Iowa caucuses, particularly Republicans, but you hear rumblings on the Democratic side, too. It's very clear that the economy has people worried, because while on paper it looks better, practically speaking, a lot of people are struggling. They're struggling, and they will tell you that. And they don't want to hear the pundits on television who will tell you everything is fine with their insurance and with their um, with the money rolls that they do not appear to have. Most Americans are out here struggling. And so, uh, Dr. Wolf, your thoughts? We've got Dwight McKee still hanging out with us. We've been talking about... Uh, 
about the protesters uh, that have been showing up increasingly at President Biden's public appearances, um, and they are becoming a source of they're becoming sources of irritation for the president because they're getting louder um, as his team is becoming more resistant. And then we just spoke with John Nichols about what happened in New Hampshire uh, from the attorney general uh, sending a cease and desist letter to the Democratic National Committee saying, hey, wait a minute, you're violating our voter suppression laws. You're telling your people not to vote. You're saying that it's meaningless. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to educate people and get them out to vote. Hmm, There's that. And then, uh, of course, you had um, and really basically an unknown ceasefire write-in campaign. And while the president finished strong, the ceasefire campaign did gain some traction when people found out about it. Oh, boy, having said all of that, the economy, I think, is driving a lot of the... is driving a lot of the dissatisfaction, a lot of dissatisfaction that, that you hear and see and feel. So talk to us, Dr. Wolf. What's on your mind this week? Yeah, so I actually think these things are all based in somewhat similar situations, right? So I think if you look at the U.S. foreign policy, if you look at awareness about combat and what it means, if you look at support for Israel versus Palestine, if you look at the difficulties that middle and lower middle class Americans and poor Americans have, there's really nothing new there, except for that the middle has collapsed. Right? And so it used to be that the, the sort of power of the U.S. meant that it was less likely that international struggles over trade routes and power blocks would become successful propaganda campaigns inside the U.S., it used to be that the parties were more able to control. Dr. Wolf? Okay. We just have to, we have to get him back. Dwight, your take on the economy and the election as we get Dr. Wolf back up. Well, the problem is that the whispers getting louder. The quota great singer Jackie Wilson, and it's calling his name, is that, and it's mostly dissatisfaction. When they talk about the the border, this dissatisfaction coming from the ranks. When they talk about God, it's dissatisfaction coming from the ranks. We talk about the economy. It's dissatisfaction coming from the ranks. And so he is running, you know, uh, almost against himself. And with no commitment to change the policies, no commitment to adjust, you know, doing halftime, then uh, my friend Dwight Walker used to say, if you want to keep getting what you're getting, keep doing what you're doing. So I, I think he's in free fall on the brink of collapse and uh, with no strategy to get out of it. Which is why one writer said yesterday that they was looking at what they thought was a democratic obituary yesterday. Wow. Dr. Wolf, are you back? Yep, yep. Okay, all right. You are. Just start again so we can stay connected. Sure. So basically my point is that newer discussions about foreign policy, the newer discussions about the economy, the newer discussions about various desires that people have from either candidate, but particularly since we're talking about Biden, right? None of that is actually new. What's new 
is the way it's handled and that the center has collapsed. Right. Just like Trump, there's always been a guy like Trump around the Republican Party, but until the party collapsed, he couldn't win. Right. And until American sort of foreign policy hegemony collapsed, you wouldn't have as overt a series of attempts made to influence the U.S. general public to get an international outcome. I think we saw that in 2016. I think we've seen it a bit since. I think you see something interesting here with U.S.-Israel support, right? And I think a lot of what's changing this is you have major global powers who feel like they can corner the U.S. based on the disproportional support for Israel and the global non-popularity of the more aggressive militarist actions Israel's taking generally, historically, but particularly now in Gaza, right? But what's new is big, powerful, wealthy blocks putting that on TV all the time. What's Oh, my goodness. I think we've lost him once again, but we'll get him right back. Um, okay. Well, Dwight, do you see, you don't see the president changing course at all? No, uh, I don't see, I see him become more recalcitrant. And it really don't matter on the international level because Netanyahu is locked in one way or another and as... while these people are sort of protesting and demanding 
often very reasonable legacy issues that kind of speak to a moment that's come and gone, possibly decades ago, because we've been slow to renew the left here, given the efforts against it. So we sort of have a somewhat aging critique that's popular across different ages. And we have a lot of people whose social critiques, however insightful, are based on four hours of doom scrolling every other day for the last two months. So they have the depth that we associate with amateur porn. Yeah. And that's going to mean that their minds can be changed quite easily and in a volatile manner. But they do have some central pillars, and those central pillars are what's new. The central pillars are all elites are bad except for my elite that told me what to think. I know this. You don't know this because I've watched 11, 25-second videos. But I like that that's on both sides, right? And that the angriest voice speaks to me. Because first and foremost, I'm angry. I don't like what's going on. But no one has taught me how to think it through. And no one wants me to think it through. Because someone wants me as a fan, a click. So it's the internetization of mass movements, right? They can come up very fast. They appear very strong. They can do interesting things very quickly, which is kind of exciting. And they can also vanish like to do when the sun burns it off. Easy to come, easy to go. They can make a change, but it's not clear who they are. It's not clear how real they are. It's not clear how many of them are bots. It's not clear how many of different groups are in other places, right? And so to me, I, I look at the baseline things I can look at because they're harder to corrupt, right? And like one of those things is, I think everyone's talking about the problems of enthusiasm around Biden and they are very real. But I think Trump has them, too. He has extreme enthusiasm, but with a very small cut of the population. So as, as odd as things were in New Hampshire for many sides, the bottom line is an, an Indian immigrant woman who changed her name, embroiled in possibly false, but serious accusations of infidelity. And of course, so is Donald. But we know there tends to be a pretty egregious double standard there, men and women on infidelity issues. Got half the vote in an election where the turnout wasn't amazing, right? So I think what's happening isn't, isn't that much about Biden. I think Biden's biggest problem is running as mayonnaise in a world where everyone's hunting for hot sauce is, is really problematic. It's less about the properties of mayonnaise and more about a moment where everyone wants hot sauce. Yeah, but you know what? I have to tell you, the only thing is, when people call him Genocide Joe, that's not mayonnaise. That's more like Harissa. <laughs> you know, that's hot sauce. Because he is not viewed uh, with the with doctor. Excuse me, Dwight McKee was talking about that, the innocence that people ascribed to him some time ago. They don't see that anymore because he has ignored uh, the pleas of the American public with respect to the ceasefire. And that's been problematic for him. Doesn't make him different from other presidents, though. And look, mm-hmm. in a state where neither party has someone, the majority of people find even acceptable, vilifying the other guy becomes the immediate best. And that's what Americans like in their politics. They like tearing, they like when the elites tear other elites down. That's always been popular. Yeah, I think. I think um, it's just not his presidents now, they're looking at him. So when he is making his public appearances, which he didn't have to do in 2020, in fact, it was not healthy to have done so, 
he is now he is now having to hire a team to deal with the protests. He never thought he'd have pushback on Israel, but he's got it, and he's got it in spades. And he is still voting, and he's still he is still thinking in the old way when the ground underneath him has shifted. It has shifted. And so my but I don't think it's is, the issues. I think well, it's the, the it's, money and the sophistication behind finding a position that anyone has and making them really pay for it. Yes, but I'm saying the position that he has is untenable for, for many people. The way people view the Middle East has changed. The policy hasn't changed, but people's view has changed. And so there is that. And with him not making the pivot, um, I think that's that's a real problem for him, Matt. Probably is, right? But that's about other things, too, right? That's probably driven by other issues, right? So, like, the Republican mm-hmm. Party has them, and the public has them. The Republican mm-hmm. Party has them because they're going to step in and slam them if she's not pro-Israel enough. Right, and the left, left and center portions of the younger community from the Democratic Party are going to slam him if he doesn't. So he's caught, right, in an informational war. Mm, so, well, where do you where do you see all of this going? Because we are now headed towards Chicago in August. The Democrats are, and mm-hmm. many people feel that this is going to be quite a contentious convention. Certainly, you will have a lot of protests outside, and you will have a fight on the floor about the Middle East. Uh, and about any number of issues, but particularly the Middle East and Bidenomics. Sure. I just, I, I, and look, this is probably passe, but I'm concerned with the fact that most of, most of these issues are now defined by passion. That's new. I don't know where it comes from, and it's substantially uninformed. Right? This is on the economic well, issues, too. It's on all the stuff, right? So it's hard to know, right? I mean, the Middle East what? has been a long time. The Middle East has been a long time coming. That's been a long building and, if you will, festering issue. Um, people have been, there's something that happened during COVID. I mean, and you know this as you see people who are unwilling to go back to the jobs that they had before. You know, folks are tired. What did, what did Fannie Lou Hamer say? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. Folks don't want to go back to these jobs, make no money. They don't want to go back to the office space. They they want a hybrid life. They want a life. They want a four-day work week. And they're like, no, I will produce for you, but this, what what you're asking of me, I mean, everything, and you said this when we yeah, started to go back fantastic. to work, when they, when they opened. Yeah, I mean, you said, look, the world that we're returning to is not the world that we left. Yeah. But I would be looking for people to build an alternative as opposed to just sort of get really angry about what's being demanded of them, you know, because otherwise you have a fight that someone's geared up to kick your ass in for 25 years and you discovered you're in this morning. I don't love those odds, you know, but that's a separate issue, Mm -hmm. right? So the Middle East is going a long time. I just think there's something interesting happened, which is the United States is overly wed to pro-Israel policy for domestic reasons. People know that. It's a vulnerability, like like invading Ukraine. And so it's just going to be weaponized, right? If you add to that the sort of interstices that, for whatever set of reasons, you have a very problematic and 
out of control government there, not even popular at home, that understands or believes that having a war and keeping a very aggressive war footing is the only way for them to survive because they're finished politically and electorally as soon as there's any election, as soon as there's any opening from the war footing. So they need the war footing to stay, right? At some point, if not already, the Russians do too, and we weaponize that against them visiting Ukraine, and they're weaponizing it with perhaps a lot of Chinese help because of a new alliance against us here, right? The question becomes, to what extent did we show the world in 2016 that we have a very angry, marginally informed, highly alienated general public that isn't a part of groups that can guide that anger and help hammer a future? And that's what makes me nervous, right? So in other words, if you're sick of police brutality and you're part of a network of churches and civic organizations that can tell you this history, that can explain different tactics, that can let you understand a range of actions and working together and figure out how to get you moving around if you're not on the bus and get you out of jail and how to protest so you're less likely to be brutalized. Like, if you take those things away, it's much harder for people. And it's much more likely to go off the rails. And that's what makes me scared. Well, you know, don't be frightened, but be prepared to... Um, resistance is still I, I, labor. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, you know, I think when you have, um, when you hear John Kennedy say that riots are the language, well, Dr. King say riots are the language of the unheard, uh, when you see protests popping up, and particularly protests, demonstrations that you did not expect to see. And, you know, it's one of the things that I've learned from Reverend Jackson is how to read a crowd. <laughs> and he, there's no one been, I think, Dwight McKee, you can attest to this, how to read a crowd, how to read a crowd, uh, Dwight McKee, off, you still there, Dwight? Still here. Yeah. You often talk about going to a Cubs game with my parents. And my mother's politics are extremely progressive. And um, and this is like 1970, 71, with people protesting the war and all of that. And, you know, you stand up during the national anthem at the, at the ball game. And, and my father was recruited by the White Sox even, but this was the, the Cubs game. And um, my mother was going to sit in the seat as a, you know, as a form of protest, my father said, oh, no, no, no. Is that not right, Dwight? In here? Yeah, that's correct. With these 40, 50,000 people? My darling mm, wife. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> You better stand that's up. <laughs> right now. And I'm wondering if, 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 if Joe Biden really understands that. Man, you better stand up right now. I mean, the time is long past even being frightened about it because this, the, the, the moment is here. And that's what happens with moments. They just arrive, you know. They just arrive and you you got to deal with them. Did Dr. Wolf close us out? Yeah, I think I he know. was selected for that reason, though. That's the hard part. I mean, look, I'm just a guy who sees structures, not people so much. So I'm going to have a blind spot there, but I think sure. it was a very risky, frustrated, frustrating last time and terrifying too. And they picked a guy whose job was to be not super hated, to be kind of 
boring, middle of the, middle of the road, because there's a reasonable thesis in America needed that, and that would be the way to beat somebody who would say anything, do anything, it was a great show. Right? Because whatever you think of Donald Trump, he's a good show, and he excites people, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but rarely boring. So they kind of picked the 180-degree opposite of that, and then that strategy got sort of into trouble last time too, by the way, but this time even more because this sort of centrist consensus on issue after issue after issue collapsed. So the centrist consensus candidate, if the consensuses are collapsing, it just looks really weird and out to lunch. Mm. So where do we go from here? Because now we're in the midst of this, we're in the midst of the, the primary season, which, Looks like it, it could effectively be over. There's certainly the leading candidates are trying to say it's over because we have presumptive nominees and we haven't even had the primary season yet. We're just beginning. I mean, what do you see going forward? Are you asking me here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You've got to close out your segment of the show. <laughs> okay. So, look, I see the economy weakening, and I think the American public begins to figure out that what's happening is the U.S. position in the world is falling. Now, aggressively, the Trump years did create that. And if he comes back, that will happen at a speed none of us can respond to. Right? Because you could, if you wanted to like America or not rattle the world order, you could pretend we elected him by accident or that he might like, sort of evolve into the job. He won't, and we didn't. And if we do it twice, this is, you know, this is like the marital infidelity. Right. Maybe once. But the second time, it's a different story, probably. Right. So I, yeah. I don't know what how the world sees that. And I think the economy is softening a bit. And I think the American public has to sort of grow up and realize the role of electoral politics, which is to pick the person least likely to murder you if you attempt to make positive social change. Well, you know, I guess we'll see how this all pans out. I mean, where do you see the election itself going. I mean, do you expect you to that? see? Yeah. Yeah. I've got one minute left for you. I'm just I mean, popular you vote the Republican see... party can't win. So, and no matter what happens, Donald Trump will say he won. Right. So to me, it's the following. Mm-hmm. The media loves the story. They need a close race. They need to have someone to bash and they need to talk about Donald Trump for ratings. They think, right. Corporate America seems to just not want to be having to fight with Donald and want to get the tax breaks and the giveaways he'll do while he gives them the occasional tongue lashing. But then we're moving toward a situation here where everybody votes their anger and annoyance and no one is building a future. And if that's happening in an increasingly difficult world where the U.S. position is still first but not dominant, not hegemon. Mm-hmm. I think the country really gets blasted. And, you know, it's Amer- the most American thing is to engineer pain down the economic and social strata. So people are in for a tough time. And as a guy who sort of feels that and sees it, it's, it's scary and a little bit painful. Mm. Everybody, keep hope alive and make sure you get out here and vote. Need to do that participate in this process and demand that the media report the whole story. You have power here. You just got to use it. Dr. Max Wolf, sending you much love today. Dr. Dwight McKee, Dr. D, sending you much love today. Um, And uh, hey, everybody, can't wait to be with you tomorrow on the Santita Jackson Show. God bless you. Thank you, Henry, for a great show. Bye-bye.